This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. To the Haymarket series. Uh, my name is Flint Taylor. I'm an attorney here in Chicago with the People's Law Office. Uh, we brought together today um, myself, uh, Heather Ann Thompson, uh, the distinguished Pulitzer Prize winning author of Blood in the Water, the definitive uh, piece on Attica. Uh, the, as you can see on your screen, it's, uh, it, it covers from uh, September of 1971 all the way through the 2000s and, and every twist and turn of that massacre uh, in uh, Attica Prison uh, in New York. Uh, I also, we also have today uh, Daryl Cannon with us. Daryl Cannon, of course, is a torture survivor here in the city of Chicago. Uh, we deal with, in my book, uh, called um, The uh, Torture Machine, uh, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Uh, we talk at length about uh, the systemic and systematic racist torture here in the city of Chicago, headed up by John Burge for decades. Uh, and Daryl was one of those victims uh, and survivors of police torture here in Chicago. He was brutally tortured, uh, and he suffered through 24 years in the penitentiary um, as a result of the tortured confession that was taken from him in 1983. So the three of us uh, together uh, hopefully will be able to take you all uh Across the last 50 years of, of, of torture, violence, murder, and assassination uh, by the official forces, the police and law enforcement, uh, talk about uh, mass incarceration, uh, and of course, the underpinnings uh, of the racism and white supremacy that underpins all that we're going to talk about uh, here today. Uh, with that uh, introduction, I'll turn it over to Heather Ann and she can uh, take it from there. Uh, great. It's so, so good to be here. And I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really, really honored to be here with both Flint and with Daryl, um, primarily because I get to be with the folks that have really made the history uh, that I write about. Uh, to be honest, I'm a bit of the imposter here. I'm the person that gets to uh, be just chronicling the stories of the struggle, uh, the, the, the real importance of why we're here tonight is the activism that uh, Flint set in motion, the activism that Daryl is here to tell you about, the, the real struggles against this police torture that uh, happened at Attica in 71, that happened against Fred Hampton, that happened uh, day in 
and day out in the Chicago Police Department that uh, took, you know, as we see in Flint's book, Flint's extraordinary book, I have to say, uh, decades, just literally decades to fight against and to successfully fight against. And um, so I am just really honored to be here to hear these stories along with you and to really be inspired by these stories of tremendous activism. Uh, and uh, and I was able with the Attica story to, uh, to uh, shine some light on that activism of what happened at Attica. My you uh, stories of police torture that the state of New York tried to bury, still tries to bury, frankly, uh, for, you know, for decades and decades there as well. And I can, I'm happy to answer questions about how uh, those stories were finally brought to light. But mostly, um, I, 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 along with you, wanna, want to uh, to want to listen uh, to Daryl and, and Flint and to really honor uh, the book, The Torture Machine, because it's really an extraordinary, extraordinary book. And, and I want to turn it over to uh, to Daryl to, uh, to to uh, to tell us also about um, his story and why and why you're here, Daryl. Thank you so very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here this evening and to everyone listening and to those who are able to see us. Please know that the struggle is continuously uh, in place. If society had dealt with what happened to Fred Hampton back in 1969, maybe Daryl Cannon and others would not have been tortured. If society as a whole would have seen and been appalled by the atrocities that occurred in the Attica murders that took place, just maybe Daryl Cannon wouldn't be here on your screen today. Torture has been something that has been routine against the black and brown communities for far too long now. And we continuously uh, hear these horrifying stories. Now that everyone has cameras on their TV, we're able to actually see the murders being taken place. We're actually able to hear people like George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. Uh, we're now finding out about Brianna Taylor and all the other host of people who have been tortured. So please know that this struggle here can never be ignored again in life. And because of that fact, just maybe there's hope that the black and brown community will not be the butt of so many brutal murders that has taken place over far too long now. And just maybe now society, thanks to Trump, has seen that we're still polarized here in the United States of America. We're still Trump was able to bring that out very, very, very talentedly by being the idiot that he is and that he'll always be. So please know that today would be a day that maybe some of you will learn things or feel things that you hadn't known before or felt before, and maybe that too would make a difference. And maybe, just maybe, you will say never again, we will stay engaged just as we'll prevail. Thank you, Darrell. Um, I think at this point, we can uh, kind of start historically and we will take uh, in some detail, we'll start with, as Heather mentioned, uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton and the murder of Mark Clark back in 1969. And Heather can then uh, address uh, Attica 
in Blood in the Water. Uh, not only the, the uh, massacre of, uh, I believe it was 39, but you can correct me on the number, um, uh, men at Attica, but the torture that went on for days and months after the fact. And then, of course, we go to Chicago uh, with 1971, 1972, uh, when John Burge uh, starts his uh, meteoric uh, rise as a torturer on the south side of Chicago ending up torturing over 125, at least, African-American men and women um, over the next 20 years. And the cover-up that followed in the same way that the cover-up or similarly to the cover-up uh, at Attica. And of course, Daryl fits right into the middle of that as a survivor of that torture, uh, a, a survivor of mass incarceration and torture uh, in the uh, Supermax prison at, at TAMS here in Illinois, and also shows the remarkable, remarkable strength to come out uh, 13 years ago now, right, Daryl? And, yep. uh, and to take the mantle uh, as a leader in the reparations uh, movement that was successful here in the city of Chicago. So we'll try to address all of that, and then we'll uh, look forward to any questions that you all might have. Uh, just a week or two ago, uh, we, we, and I celebrate is the obviously the, the not the right word, we commemorated the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark mm. on the west side of Chicago. Uh, I raid that, that started at 4.30 in the morning, uh, that 14 heavily armed uh, Chicago police officers working under the direct control of the state's attorney of Cook County at that time was Edward Hanrahan. Uh, they came to the apartment and they raided that apartment. And when they left a few moments later, uh, Fred Hampton lay uh, dead in his blood uh, in the back bedroom. Mark Clark lay dead uh, in the front. Uh, he was sitting sentry at the time and several Panthers were uh, seriously wounded uh, and others uh, were uh, brutalized, and all seven who survived were charged falsely with attempted murder. That was the uh, the the predicate for a 13-year struggle, a struggle that led to the changing of the narrative uh, that uh, was accompanying the uh, the assassination. Because uh, the powers that be, who obviously always try to write the history and control the history and use their lies as the history, uh, said this was a shootout. They said it was a shootout between the vicious Black Panthers uh, and the police. And those police who had a, uh, a machine gun, uh, several shotguns, handguns, rifles, um, they, in fact, uh, according to the official story, uh, were assaulted by the Panthers. There was uh, 200 shots fired. And to quote the state's attorney of Cook County, but for the grace of God, uh, the, none of the officers were, were hurt. Uh, the reality was that 90 shots or more were fired by the police. Uh, only one at most was fired by the Panthers, and that in all likelihood was fired by Mark Clark as he was shot uh, and falling backwards, shot through the heart. Fred Hampton was, in fact, shot in his bedroom while he lay asleep, most likely drugged by an FBI informant who set up the raid. 
And uh, several people, as I said, were charged with attempted murder. Now, through the struggle of not only the lawyers, not only the Panthers, not only the survivors of that raid, uh, and not only the community uh, here in Chicago and nationally, uh, and also uh, honest the newspaper people and media folks, over that 13 years, that narrative changed. And the narrative changed as the evidence, as the truth, was uh, disgorged from the powers that be. And of course, they didn't release that evidence voluntarily. It took fighting both inside and on the, inside the courts and on the streets in order to get that evidence. But that evidence uh, and the public uh, publication of it led to the change of the narrative, which was, of course, as I said, uh, at first a shootout, uh, then it became a shoot-in, the 90 bullets to the one bullet. Uh, then it became the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And then as more and more evidence about COINTELPRO, as more and more evidence about the FBI's role, the informant's role in, in doing a floor plan, a floor plan of the apartment showing where Fred would be sleeping, uh, a um, documents that showed that this uh, raid was part of a COINTELPRO program uh, initiated by the FBI, uh, and evidence that uh, came out later that showed that the informant who set up that raid and did the floor plan that that, that was so vital uh, to the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark uh, was rewarded with a bonus, uh, that in fact his boss was rewarded with a bonus, uh, straight from Hoover and the people in Washington, and that in fact they they took this uh, raid and, and, and this assassination proudly as part of the COINTELPRO program. So that's how the narrative has changed uh, with regard to the Fred Hampton case. Uh, and I think that uh, it's important, however, as people, uh, activists, uh, historians, lawyers, whomever you may be, that we have to defend that narrative, that that narrative will not just remain as it is now. Uh, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. And of course, uh, my partner, Jeff Haas, uh, wrote uh, The Assassination of Fred Hampton that deals uh, with this evidence in, in great detail. And it's the reason that, or one of the reasons I'm sure that Heather uh, wrote what she wrote. Uh, she is certainly uh, a premier people's historian. Uh, and I turn it over to Heather at this point to pick up uh, the narrative, uh, the people's narrative, as it were, as it, as it threads through the torture machine and blood in the water, and of course, through Daryl's story as well. Thank you, Flint. Um, you know, I, I'm so struck listening to uh, this recounting of, of what happened, <laughs> what happened to Fred Hampton, what happened to Mark Clark, and I'm so struck because this is uh, such a familiar playbook. It, it, it's what happens time and time and time again when the police uh, end up trying to uh, trying to change the narrative after getting into a uh, getting into uh, a mess. And the mess is they try to root out uh, black freedom struggles and then shift the blame 
and say that uh, they didn't do anything wrong. And it always works because they're the master of the narrative. But actually, it doesn't work because they forget that the people that they're trying to talk about are human beings who have volition and will and actually can tell their own stories. And so what abs- what happens at Attica is so similar. The men at Attica have a powerful uprising for basic human rights. At the end of the day, the police storm Attica. They sh- end up shooting 128 men so brutally, some of them six and seven times. They end up killing 39 men, shooting them uh, literally uh, in cold blood. Not a single man inside of Attica has a firearm. And then they step out in front of that prison and tell the American people that something completely different happened. They say that the men in that prison are the ones that killed the hostages, killed each other. And that lie went out on the front page of the New York Times, the L.A. Times. It went out on the front page of newspapers all across America because it went out over the AP wire. And like what happened at the Panther House, that lie was an attempt to shift blame. It was a cover-up. They then subsequently took all of the evidence inside of DR at at Attica. They scooped it up. They buried it behind the prison. They they doctored photographs. They uh, spliced film. They had secret meetings at Rockefeller's pool house to get their story straight. They actually put the same police officers who had been in charge of the retaking in charge of the Attica investigation. And like at what happened in Chicago, they also tried to indict the victims of police violence uh, with the shooting, (laughs) with the murder the police themselves committed. But again, like the story that Flint tells, it didn't work. Um, The men at Attica refused to be silent. It took decades, but the story at Attica is about one of the most Herculean uh, legal defense efforts in American history, one of the most extraordinary uh, human rights struggles in American history. Uh, Flint's law office was also central to that, too. Uh, The men at Attica stood up there, just as the Panthers stood up in Chicago against that cover-up. And and at the end of the day, the story of Attica, like the story uh, that that Flint tells, is a story of resistance. And I will just say that um, that story paves the way in so many respects for the story that Daryl will now tell you, which is that no matter how much... Uh, the police refuse to get the message that torture uh, is is uh, <laughs> is not the way that we treat human beings in this country, um, and that people will not sit down for it, and they will not accept it, and that they will not they will not allow our histories to be told this way. Um, 
you know, they they will be reminded by people like Daryl <laughs> that the day will be uh, the day will come when the buck will stop. And and Daryl, I would love for you to tell the story that is told so powerfully in the torture machine about how this all comes to a head in Chicago with Burge. Uh, indeed, it, it is my pleasure to have been a part of such a, a despicable nightmare that took place with me uh, on November the 2nd, 1983. During that day, I was tortured by three detectives in despicable ways that I never knew even existed. Can you imagine being taken to an isolated area in the city of Chicago on the east side, gotten out the car, here's three detectives, you handcuff behind your back, and one of the first things they tell you is that, nigga, look around. Nobody's going to hear or see anything that we do to you today. You can scream all you want to, no one's going to hear you. They were true to those things. I screamed so much that day from being tortured that by the time they got me to a cell, I was hoarse. I couldn't even speak. All I wanted to do was to lay down and ball up in a knot. I mean, after having uh, had them trying to hang me by my handcuffs, which was cuffed behind my back while at this torture site, that didn't work because the bumper was too slippery and the detective couldn't keep his footing on the bumper as the other two lift me up to him. And when that didn't work, can you imagine someone standing in front of you with a pump shotgun and you cuff behind your back and he tell you the words of nigga, listen. And he turn his back to you and you hear the sounds of what you feel with the shell going up in the chamber. And when he turned around and pumped that shotgun and pointed in my face and say, nigga, you want to tell us what we want to know? We already know some parts of it. We just need for you to confirm it. And even though I had nothing to say to them, even though I wanted my attorney and I told them that, they laughed at that, and they stuck the shotgun in my mouth. I didn't voluntarily allow them to stick the shotgun in my mouth, so they had to force it in there. And then forcing it in there, they chipped my two upper teeth. And when they got that barrel in my mouth, Peter Dignan, is the detective that had the shotgun. He said, nigga, you gonna talk? And when I tried to say, no, another one, I said, go ahead, shoot that nigga. And that's when he pulled the trigger. To show you how the mind works, each time that they played the mock execution on me, the third time that they did it, and I heard the click of that shotgun, my mind had told me that he had just blew the back of my head off. But of course he hadn't. Then they took me around to the side of the car and one of the detectives, Sergeant Burns, put a chrome 45 automatic to my head and said, nigga, if you move a muscle, I'm going to blow your brains out. And they redid the handcuffs where the handcuffs was in front of me. They pulled my pants and shorts down and pushed me sideways to lay in the back seat of a detective car, while another one of the detectives came around to the back seat on the other side, made me raise my arms up, which was still cuffed, 
and he pulled them. And when he pulled them, that made me lie down backwards in the backseat of the detective car. And the man took an electric caliper and he continued to electroshock me on my testicles, my genitals, and all while talking to me, all while I was screaming, they continued to have fun with me. This went on to the point that they broke me and I was ready to say my mother did it in order to stop them from electroshocking me. And by the time I reached the police station, I barely knew my name. And I had been called nigger so much that day that at one point, uh, I was wondering if my name was Daryl Cannon or nigger. Because the way that they said it, uh, they meant just that. To them, I was nothing except a nigger. And a nigger had no statue. Uh, whatsoever. Nigga had no respect whatsoever. Just That's why I get so mad now every time they show a rerun of George Floyd laying there, dying, can't breathe. And I remember thinking too that I was going to die that day with everything they did to me. And so I clearly understand how George Floyd's family feels I clearly understand how so many other torture victims feel because the justice system didn't want to hear anything about what was right, what was wrong. I had the right to defend myself in court. I wasn't given that. Those detectives decided that they were going to administer whatever justice they felt that they needed to administer in order to get me to say something that was not true. They didn't give a damn of whether or not it was true. And to this day, if you ask me the question of how do I feel about those that torture me, I will clearly tell you I hate the air they breathe. Right? I'll always hate the air they breathe. During those 24 years of being incarcerated, they put me in a supermax penitentiary where I'm locked up in a cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My bed consists of a concrete block with a paper-thin mattress. And I had to learn for nine years how to sleep on my right side, left side, front and back in order to survive. And during that hellish nightmare, everyone in my family died. My mother, my father, every one of my family died one by one. And not one time was I allowed. I was, I was never allowed to go back to any of their funerals. Even though the Department of Correction did in fact have a policy that if you could pay you could go back. But in my case, no. They wouldn't allow Daryl Cannon to go back, even though Daryl Cannon's not a hellraiser in prison. No, no. In fact, Daryl Cannon was a peacemaker in prison. <laughs> you know, but I guess uh, when they want you to be quiet, they'll place you in a place like Supermax Tams. So I stayed there nine years. I seen men carried out of there bleeding profusely because they tried to commit suicide. They couldn't take the isolation of being locked up. 
when they bring you a magazine that someone sent you from the streets, they take the staples out the magazine so there's nothing to hold the pages in. So they fall out. I mean, they did things there in Supermax that was all about torture, all about breaking you, but I, I was blessed. Three women raised me, my mother, my grandmother, and my sister. My brothers was there, but the women ran the household, and I was the baby of the family. And I got that stubbornness from them. And I told myself while in prison, I'd be damned if I would be here for the remainder of my life uh, in prison. The judge gave me a natural life sentence, even though there was never a shred of evidence against me, not a single witness, nothing but so-called confession and those three despicable individuals come into court testifying against me, saying that I told them that I was a party to a murder that took place when in fact I wasn't. So please know that once again, upon my arrival at home, I felt that God had allowed me to survive everything that I did in order to continue to speak, in order to be a voice for those in prison who have never had the opportunity to speak about the atrocities that occurred in their case. And I'll continue to do so. Uh, it's a hellish nightmare that never goes away. The pain and the misery never subside. But nevertheless, as long as God allowed me to get up every day, I'd be damned if I would allow the memory of such people like Fred Hampton the memory of all those um, beautiful brothers, brown and black, that was in Attica, who lost their lives because all they wanted was just some basics. Not no conjugal visits, just the basics. To be treated like human beings and not like cattle. Yes, the past is today. And if we, the people, are not careful, the future will continue down this course of brutality and murder in the name of all oh, I fear for my life. Why? Because I'm black? You fear for your life? Because I'm black? That allows you to do whatever you choose to do to me because you think I may have committed a crime. If not this one, then something else. Then this is not America. Because in America, they say this is the land of the free. We have a right to our day in court and not a right to be executed on the streets, in the jails, in prisons. No, no. So I'll continue to speak. I'll continue to be a part of any and everything that will cause light to be shined on a dark subject, which is we the endangered species of America, black and brown. Thank you, Daryl. Um, mm -hmm. Heather, go right ahead. You know, listening to, to Daryl speak, I, I was realizing that I was actually remiss when I was talking about Attica to not say something that, that, that Daryl is reminding me of, that it isn't just that the Attica brothers were killed when the 
when the police officers, when the troopers, and when the when the guards came into Attica on September 13th, they didn't just shoot all those men. When they had full order of that prison, they then and and you did mention this, Flint, but I didn't I didn't do the story justice. They then tortured those men for mm. days and weeks and months. Yeah. And to your point, Daryl, you know, nobody nobody believed them. And Everybody that tried to get in there and give them aid, uh, there was doctors banging on that door to try to get in there and help the wounded men. They were being turned away. There were caravans of doctors coming from New York City, uh, black doctors and nurses coming from New York City. They were turned away. There were there were medics that were turned away. There were lawyers trying to get in. There were people trying to see what was going on. And there were, in fact, some people trying to help. But meanwhile, they were being tortured. And for months and months, that went on. Mm. And then for the next 30 years, those men tried to tell their stories of what had happened to them. And what is so despicable, you use that word, the state of New York fought those men tooth and nail. And they said not only uh, that nothing had happened to them, they said that the worst thing that might have happened to them was, and they use this term, a fraternity hazing. Mm. That was mm. that was at best, what might have happened. And as one of the Attica lawyers said, no, it was an orgy of violence. And that phrase has always really resonated because that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. These were men who had been tortured for days and weeks and months. And the thing is, just like you, they just kept telling their stories and kept at it. And for 30 years, kept telling their stories, even when people kept saying it had not happened, it didn't happen. And when they brought those stories finally before a judge and finally before juries and got some measure of an audience to hear those stories, even then... <laughs> Even then, they were tried to, you know, it was tried to be denied on an appeal. You know, no, 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 you can't be a clash. You can't say that this happened to you. So it's just sort of extraordinary how the, the torture is the common denominator. But yet, but yet, everybody still told that story. And mm -hmm. at the end of they did stand together. And at the end of the day, there is testimony. And at the end of the day, they were not silenced. Yes, ma'am. I mean, it, it took a, a collaboration of, of a lot of people to bring mm -hmm. Chicago to its needs and yeah. to acknowledge the fact that torture did, in fact, exist. Uh, the, uh, one stupid state's attorney, and I call him stupid because of the fact that in my appeal, one of the things he argued before the judge is that uh, if Daryl Cannon is alleging that he was tortured, and there's others that say they was tortured too. Well, it can't be tortured if uh, if it wasn't done in the exact same manner each and every time. And the judge said, that's ludicrous. 
just because the torture may alter the, the methods of torture slightly does not take away from the fact that he's been tortured. Simple as that. And I thought the judge was very on point when he made that statement. And again, just like in the Attica case, where they lied uh, about the atrocities that took place there, by me being in prison myself, knowing what they do, uh, especially when the Orange Crush come in. When they come in, they coming in with brute force. They're coming in, even though you may be down on the ground, they're coming in and they're going to still bust you in the head with them sticks. They're going to still stump you in the head. I have witnessed this here uh, a few times during my stay uh, in prison. So I automatically knew that they was lying. But to the general public, uh, sometimes uh, our own people can be a little bit naive for one reason or another and accept these vicious lies and fabrications that exist. But as long as you have someone willing to continue to say that, hey, no, 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 no. This, in fact, did happen, such as the case was here in Chicago, where we proved that there was a systematic pattern of torture here in the city of Chicago. And as a result of that, uh, I spoke before the city council. And after I got through speaking before the city council, they gave me a standing ovation. That is something to this day that I still picture in my mind that all these important, prestigious people here that determines how the city will be ran. You gave me, Daryl Cannon, a standing ovation. I mean, finally, the truth has started to sink in. And as a result of that, I have been blessed enough to have spoken at schools. I've spoken to probably over 400 and some schools. Not not just here in the city of Chicago, but in New York, Detroit, California, San Francisco. Uh, they have taken me a lot of places to speak about the atrocities that do exist within the police department. And I've been asked the question of, do I ever fear that something may happen to me? No, no. As far as I'm concerned, that if God brought me through all of this, and I'm still relative in my right state of mind, my health is... Is, is getting better, uh, I have a mission. And that mission is to continue to speak, continue to encourage others to speak as well. As long as we can speak, as long as we can stand, you know, we can get involved. I think John Lewis uh, made a statement not long ago before his death about swimming in a sea of despair. And when I heard him say that, I took it a step further in meaning that, yes, we're swimming in a sea of despair, but we're also looking for dry land and we'll continue to swim until we reach dry land. And that is the mission that is for all of us right now. We must stay the course. We must say never, never, never again. Will any of these atrocities go unchallenged, whether it be on the streets or whether it be in the jails or the penitentiaries? We must bring some order to orderly situations like this. But amen, Daryl. Amen. Um, <laughs> the 
I think you can see everyone who's watching and listening uh, how uh, people, uh, lawyers like myself, uh, are inspired to continue fighting over these years and decades. When you meet and represent and become friends with people like Fred Hampton, like Big Black uh, in Attica, who was tortured uh, in this very similar way to, to the way Daryl was, certainly not the same um, instrumentalities, but as Daryl said, uh, the torture is torture. And Big Black was tortured uh, because they, the guards had an attitude towards him because they thought that he had been involved in some violence against guards, which in fact he hadn't. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, but um, <clears throat> then we talk about not only Big Black and we talk about Fred Hampton, but we talk about Daryl Cannon. And all those people have inspired me and inspired the movement and have made the movement what it is. Yes. Today. And I would say also that people need to understand the struggle that went on here in Chicago to change that narrative in a similar way that the narrative with regard to Fred Hampton was changed in a similar way to the way that Attica's um, narrative was changed as well. And that is when the torture issue first came to light in the 1980s, the narrative, the narrative by the powers that be, and that was a narrative that was headed up by Richie Daly, the state's attorney of Cook County, who went on to be the mayor of Cook, of, of Chicago. And Heather talks about Rockefeller, and we talk about Daly, because they are where the buck stopped with regard to the cover-up. And without them, there could have been no continuing cover-up. Mm -hmm. And here, that narrative started out as a, a black cop killer um, alleging police brutality. Uh, against the decorated Vietnam veteran and commander of police, John Burge. And that narrative, because of intergenerational, interracial uh, movements uh, over the decades, has been changed to what it in fact is. And that is systemic and systematic racist and white supremacist torture that was not only um, implemented by a... a um, a commander of Chicago police, but also was uh, covered up uh, and enabled by prosecutors right up to the chief prosecutor and public officials right up to the mayor of the city of Chicago. So in that sense, there is a line that, that, that it can be drawn from the, the, the Hampton case through uh, Attica and to the torture cases. And that's why it's so appropriate that we brought together uh, these issues here today. Uh, and it, it's brought to life. It's one thing to be on a page like uh, the books that we talk about, but Daryl brings it to life. He shows you not only uh, what torture means, what suffering at the hands of torturer means, but he also shows you the strength the strength that a human being can have, the strength that someone can bring 
in, in the same way that Big Black brought that strength to the movement in Attica. And that. And what a movement is, right? Right, Flynn? I mean, I'm just so struck by what you're saying because what really is the glue here in all of these stories is that broader movement. I mean, you know, you can't read your book and you cannot read about Attica and not see that what brings Daly and what brings Rockefeller and what brings Burge and what brings all these people to their knees at the end of the day is that people should show up and whether it is folks on the inside or whether it is these young lawyers who don't even have their law degree yet (laughs) they are still in law school or whether it's or young lawyers or or just you know community folks you know folks showing up at fred hampton's house and looking at these bullets and they know that those bullets they know they can see which direction those bullets are going and just showing up day after day and showing up in the streets for George Floyd. And the thing is, is every time in American history, no matter how much power these dudes have at the top, whether it's Daly or Rockefeller or whoever, I mean, the state of New York had so much money in the Attica investigation, right? There was so much money mounted in the Fred Hampton cases. There was so much money to to make you know the cover up go the way it was supposed to go there was so much money to to make sure that you know Daryl's story doesn't get told there's so much money to keep people behind bars that you know to, to make sure that confessions that were false confessions stick but they don't and they don't because of that of people showing up because of that broader movement and and you just can't read the torture machine or you can't read the Attica book you can't read these you can't you can't you can't be there and not see that that's that's the other piece of this right that's the other piece of the story that is just so powerful that that I don't know I mean I'm just really moved by that because to hear you Daryl is you know part of it is just so powerfully you know, it is so it's so humbling and so terrible to 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 hear you recount that again as it is to to, to read it. But on the other hand, it's like you're here <laughs> and, and and that story is just reminding me of that movement story. I don't know. I, I well you know what? Uh that's the glue. That's the glue is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, and no question about that. And history has a way of repeating itself sometimes for the betterment. Uh it, it's not strange to me, you know, to be here with the two of you. The two of you have have, have put together uh, a reading piece for those that can't come out and protest a lot but want to understand what happened. Well, all they have to do is read both of your books. If they read your two books, they will get a crash course immediately on what has happened in the past, what has slowed down, but is still happening now, and how we can go about stopping it from happening in the future. Uh, I am encouraged. Uh, I see youngsters all while they was out there protesting and it, it did my soul a world of good. Not my heart, my soul. Because my soul goes even further than my heart. And to see them out there civically engaged mm. and saying, hey, 
We're not going to tolerate it anymore. Every time I saw it, I cried. And I cried not like I usually cry. You Normally when I start crying, I'm crying because I'm just that mad. But every time I cried and seeing these youngsters out there saying, you want to stop this, enough is enough. I said, yes, yes, you are today, you are tomorrow, you are our futures. Yes, be civically engaged. And to all of those that have not come out, there's different things you can do to support the struggle, whether it be a letter campaign writing, phone call writing, or anything of that nature to get the attention of those who you have elected. And say, hey, I put you in office and I can take you out of office. Do the proper thing for everybody, not just some people. Yes, all lives matter, no question about that. But who has been well disproportioned in receiving a measure of unjust? We, the black and brown people. And it's unfortunate, but nevertheless, uh, I tell people quickly that I'm not a racist. Flint Taylor is not only my attorney. Flint Taylor is a personal friend of mine. Flint Taylor, I will put my life in his hands. I have put my life in his hands a long time ago. And I am thankful to God that he allowed me the mentality to be able to do so because whether it be people's law office with his team or other people down at Northwestern with Lot Bowman and them, uh, I have had some beautiful white attorneys that I don't look at them as being white. I just look at them as being human beings that have a passion for those who have been downtrodden and wrongfully did. And Heather, now that I have met you, I had read, I must admit, I hadn't read the entire book. I had read portions of it and I meant to read the rest of it. But now I intend to read the entire book so that if you ever desire to have to talk to Daryl Cannon about uh, what was in your book, I would be able to do so in an intelligent manner beyond a shadow of doubt because whether it be you or whether it be Flint's book, uh, The Torture Machine, those are some beautiful documents that are factual and people need to be in tune with that blood in the water. I don't know who decided to have the title, but it's very fitting. It is truly fitting because blood ran like water in that penitentiary when they went in there and the stormtroopers did what they did. And the torture machine, no question about it, it was just that, a, a well-oiled machine that was allowed to flourish for far too long. But like anything else, sooner or later, the end had to come. And I'm so thankful to God that it came in within my time. And to the two of you, please don't never stop doing what you're doing because we the people need people like you to help mm -hmm. us, to represent us. Well, thank you, Daryl. Um, at this point, we have a series of questions, uh, some of which um, seem to be very, very, uh, uh, all of them seem very appropriate, I shouldn't say. Uh, and I'm not sure which came first and which came last because they're here on our phone. But I'll just start here uh, with uh, uh, a question from Hannah. 
says, love this talk. Could the speakers talk about these experiences in relation to prison abolitionism? Would especially love to hear about Attica and abolition. Uh, you want to handle that one, Heather? Sure. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a little hard to, to not uh, look at what happened at Attica and come to the conclusion that these institutions are irreformable. They are institutions of inherent and innate violence. Uh, these are institutions that put human beings in cages full stop. There is no conceivable way you can put a human being in a cage and expect uh, a humane, a human outcome. So to me, the answer is clear, uh, you know, that we cannot uh, expect we, we cannot expect good outcomes of this. And so therefore we have to think of other ways of having a just society than prison. So I think that that is very clear. And I think Attica shows at, at, at every turn uh, that that particular institution is uh, irreformable. Attica is a torture site. I mean, just speaking specifically of Attica itself, the fact that it is still open, the fact that it is still operational is shocking. Uh, it is operates every day with the memory of what happened in 1971. The people there every day, the, the staff there, many of the staff are related to staff that was there in 1971. So it is a, it is a torture site. It is a. It, it should be shut down. Um, so Attica specifically is a, is just a horrendous institution, and, and it, it looks the same today as it did in you know the early '30s when it was built and opened. Mm. Um, and so yeah, uh, so that that's an easy one. Uh, prisons should not exist. <laughs> so yeah, that's easy for me. Thank you. Um, I'm. I second that emotion. Or not, it isn't an emotion. I se second that position, I should say. Um, this is a question uh, from Denise. Uh, I have much respect for Mr. Cannon, exclamation point. I think we all share in that. Keep on speaking out. Has there been any policy changes as a result of your speaking out about your treatment? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that the curriculum on police brutality must now be taught here in the city of Chicago and all public schools. Uh, I'm thankful that because of not only me speaking out, but other torture survivors as well speaking out and members of their family speaking out, we have now have strongly put into place a policy where they have to have the body cams now, the cameras now. And it's because of what happened and the fact that we have spoken out so forcefully about police brutality that, okay, the city to cover themselves now, they must have, all officers must have body cam, not just the sergeant or the lieutenant, but no, all officers, you know, so that we can see and hear uh, what's happening in real time. But like anything else, every now and then, an officer forgot to turn his camera on 
You know, uh, uh, it seems that I don't know how you could forget to turn on a very important piece of evidence that if needed in, in any kind of trial or anything else, you can forget to turn it on. But unless you're doing something that you know is not lawful, and so you don't want this camera, but we've made strides in that area. We've made strides in terms of making the city acknowledge that police torture did, in fact, exist here in the city of Chicago. Uh, they did what is called a, a, a reparations. They granted us here in the city of Chicago reparations for having been tortured. The only other people I ever known that got reparations, I think, was the Japanese who were interned during World War II, who committed no crime whatsoever other than who they were, a Japanese. And they locked them up, and they eventually gave them reparations. Well, now uh, the city of Chicago has gave us the torture survivors. Not all torture survivors. There's still many more torture survivors that have yet to receive an ounce of justice. And for them, we're hoping that Sooner than later, they too will receive a measure of justice. I know that as long as God allowed me to wake up each and every day and allow me to put my best foot forward, uh, I intend to be seen and heard if someone wants me to speak about these atrocities. So we have made some headway here in Chicago, but the glass is still half full. There's another half yet to be rendered because Chicago has yet to give at least another 20 or so guys that are still in prison a fair and impartial hearing into their allegations about having been tortured. And until uh, they come to grips with that and Kim Fox or whoever the case may be, start bringing some more of these cases back in an expeditious manner and give them some fair and impartial hearing, the work will continue to go on. So yes, we've made some strides, but uh, there's still a lot of work yet to be done. And that's where these youngsters come in at. Uh, they're getting a taste of what it's like to speak up for those who aren't able to speak for themselves. And I'm so happy for them. And may God continue to give them the strength and the willpower to do just that. And we have a question here. Thanks, Daryl. Yes, we sir. We have a question from... Uh, someone with a bit of a humorous uh, handle, uh, Minnie Mouse uh, 6100. <laughs> but her question is quite serious. How did do we wrest control of the meta narratives about police violence from the state institutions that commit this violence? Well, Daryl has touched upon um, the, uh, the struggle here in Chicago uh, with regard to reparations. And that struggle uh, started decades ago. And uh, in the same way or in a similar way that the, the narrative was, was uh, seized from uh, the police and the, the powers that be in the Fred Hampton case, uh, that has gone on here uh, in Chicago. And we, Daryl mentioned, but it cannot be overemphasized the importance of the reparations struggle. Because that was a struggle here in Chicago that was unique at that time. Uh, and it was a struggle that directly raised uh, the racism uh, and the systemic nature of, 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 the, uh, of the torture regime here in the city of Chicago. And it made demands 
that were outside of the narrow um, uh, uh, fabric of, of, of the uh, justice system. It made demands for men uh, who had no legal recourse. It made demands for a community that had no, quote, legal recourse. And those demands were carried by the movement. And as I mentioned before, it was carried by an intergenerational and interracial movement. And it was carried uh, on, the, on the shoulders of uh, people who came before them, uh, mm -hmm. the, the survivors of police torture, people uh, who were in the movement in the 80s, in the 90s, uh, and fighting these struggles to get people off of death row, fighting uh, to get people exonerated. Uh, and fighting for, for damage uh, rewards for those who were wrongfully convicted. But the reparations not only got a full-throated apology from, of all people, the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, uh, that Daryl mentioned, uh, that he gave directly along with city, uh, 50 city council members at the day that reparations was granted. But most significantly, I think, in all of the, uh, the, the litany of wonderful, uh, things that were obtained as part of reparations was the fact that the torture struggle and the real narrative of the torture struggle and uh, of, of the scandal uh, would be taught each spring semester to the eighth and 10th grades of the students of the public schools here in the city of Chicago. And that is a way not only to seize, not only was the, uh, the narrative seized in that way, but that it will be perpetrated. It will be continued uh, against the resistance uh, of the police and, and those reactionary and racist forces that want to change back uh, the truth. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Daryl and others uh, had the honor uh, to speak to young students and to connect their experiences and to connect the torture experiences to what they were living and understanding in their own lives on the streets of the city of Chicago with not only themselves as young people, but their uh, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Uh, and so that um, was and is an important way that the narrative was not only, I wouldn't say seized because it was a long and hard uh, collective struggle to yeah. change the narrative, but yeah. it's now being defended uh, in uh, in the schools and with a uh, memorial that's going to be uh, built and hopefully soon uh, it's been designed uh, to the torture survivors. Uh, a center on the south side of Chicago that treats uh, torture survivors uh, and their, their families. And of course, as I mentioned, the apology, uh, job training, all of that. So that is not only something that was unique and important to the city of Chicago, but it is a framework for what people can fight for and have been fighting for uh, in the wake of the, uh, obtaining uh, reparations five years ago uh, today in other cities and towns across the country. So that in fact, uh, people can control the relief that they get in the awful circumstances of police violence uh, and wrongful convictions and can speak to more than just monetary uh, compensation. Mm -hmm. so I think that that uh, it's not a policy decision in the sense that the city of Chicago has changed its policies, but it is a people's victory 
and it is something that uh, stands uh, as, as an example to others who are involved in similar struggles. Um, Heather, go, uh, could you add to that? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you for that. That was super helpful for me just to, just to be reminded of all of the layers of, of how these specific uh, these the specific changes that were implemented will make such a difference on the ground to changing this narrative. And I think that's really important for us to hear. Uh, and I just want to add that in terms of narratives, it's really important to understand that the reason why uh, this day, if you were to go to upstate New York and ask who killed the hostages at Attica, the reason why to this day so many people would still maybe say the prisoners <laughs> as mm. opposed to troopers is because we allow too often state actors to tell us what happened unquestionably. Yes. If we, we need to start, I think, first, if police officers or prison officials tell us what just happened, we need to ask for corroboration throughout American history. And I do mean throughout American history, every single time a prison official tells you what has happened in a prison uprising, it is incorrect. It is not what happened. The story is always more complicated than that. When prisoners uh, rise up, when there is a, uh, when something has happened, the story is always more complicated. Something is always afoot. Similarly, when there has been something that the police have told you, there is always a more complicated story. So I think we need to start by asking for corroboration. And so, so the narrative can't change if we just, as the media, as reporters, as citizens, uh, accept what the police commissioner says as corroborated as the fact and similarly with what the uh the superintendent of a prison says so that is a big start and then i think the other piece of that is that the citizens who are not subject to that kind of torture on a daily basis so upper middle class white people to be blunt need to start telling the truth a lot more about the fact that they know damn well that they would not tolerate that treatment from their own law enforcement, that they would believe their children if their children came home and said a police officer had treated them that way, that they would immediately go down to the police station and demand accountability, that they would immediately uh, insist upon remedy, and that to demand, in fact, equal justice under the law, that there is a, a level of uh, you know, a, a, a level of we if we want these narratives to change. But for people to take accountability in honesty, <laughs> uh, you know, frankly, in white communities, honesty about what is going on uh, and, and, and to believe people when they tell you what is going on and know for a fact that, in fact, it's going on and, and, and just to, to, to say it and to stand with people when they tell you what's going on. Uh, and, and 
I think that's going to go a long way. This is just at a much more, you know, a meta level, not the more direct level that you were speaking to, Flint. Here's a question from another Heather. Um, and she asks, do you think that Chicago's federal police consent decree will be reinforced with the change in the administration? I guess I can speak to that uh, briefly. Um, it started out with the consent decree under the Obama administration, and then uh, Trump uh, rescinded it, basically. The consent decree was then adopted uh, by uh, the uh, state attorney general in, in large part, uh, and the city went along with most of it. I think the broader question, and so I imagine that the Biden administration is going to reinstate a, a somewhat uh, uh, powerful and efficient uh, civil rights division that will, uh, will will attack some of the worst uh, violations, systemic violations in the cities across the country, their police departments and prisons. But I think a more basic question uh, that we ask, uh, we who have been doing this for many, many years, and, and in our work, we, we implicitly or explicitly seek certain reforms uh, of the police department, whether it be in discipline, whether it be uh, in monitoring, supervision, uh, you name it, all the kinds of things that have been tried and, and are the, the meat of these uh, consent decrees. And the question becomes, do they really have the impact uh, that we want them to have? Uh, are the kinds of incremental reforms uh, the kinds of things that really change a police department? Uh, or are they only uh, interim things that, that really beg for uh, a more significant and broader answer? And I think the young folks today are raising those broader answers. And they may not be attainable uh, any more quickly than abolition of prisons may be obtainable. But abolition of the police, defunding of police, alternatives to police, true community control of police, those are issues that um, and and re and the remedies that seem to me to be more uh, important and and more uh, uh, have to be more on the table these days than the kind of incremental reforms which unfortunately uh, we see uh, th that history repeats itself even when there are uh, decrees and, and and young black men and women are still uh, shot and killed. And cops are still allowed to, to 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 run rampant in the in the cities where the con consent decrees are entered, in similar ways to uh, cities where uh, there hasn't been consent decrees. That that would be my response to it. I don't know if anyone else wants to uh, put their two cents uh, or four cents or whatever in on that, or should I go to the next question? Next question. All right. I think maybe we'll get through all of them, hopefully. Mm -hmm. If I can get my phone open, I will <laughs> I will go to the next question. Okay. Uh, this is from Roxanne. This is for you, Daryl. And it, it, it's somewhat, um, this is a good one as well. Very good one. Um, Thank you, Haymarket, she says. How can we best help folks who are currently incarcerated other than voting against unfair propositions and laws such as Proposition 20, which was recently uh, in California. How do you how do you think we can uh, uh, help people who are behind bars? 
Uh, first of all, you can start a writing campaign. Find someone that can can get you uh, information on various uh, inmates in, in prison. It, you want to write to those who are in need. So somehow you, you need to have some kind of public forum that will allow you to find out who these particular prisoners are and to start a writing campaign uh, to them about, well, how are you doing? Uh, what do you need? Um, what's the basis of why are you in prison? And once you start learning about these things there, now you're starting to learn the specifics of what people need and help. Uh, I have a friend that uh, a young, he's much younger than I am. He's in prison, not because he murdered anyone. He's in prison because he was accused of being a part of an armed robbery. No one got killed or injured or anything else. But because of Illinois having that three strike law, this was his third time. They gave him natural life. Mm -hmm. And since he's been in prison, his mother passed away. It was only the two of them that existed. So what does he need? He needs a, a attorney. Uh, he needs some help uh, in trying to, to put forth a clemency and to show that the three strike law was ba made basically against black and brown people uh, from the get go, the same way that they had disparities between powder cocaine and, and rock form cocaine, uh, different charges altogether. Well, again, in order for us to be effective we have to find out who some of these people are in prison and get word to them that, hey, look, we would like to know more about you. You know, here's a P.O. Box address you can send a letter to. Let me know who you are, and, and you can go from there. And I would add um, that both, uh, I think I can speak for Heather on this one, I think we both really much uh, like to get our book to prisoners. Uh, that I know there are certain uh, people and certain uh, organizations that supply books to prisoners. I think that Haymarket would be open to helping to supply books uh, that would go to prisoners uh, if people make that request either to me um, and, and, and Heather's publisher, I would assume, and Heather would be on board with that as well. And so that, uh, I think, is uh, something that we all can do from out here uh, mm -hmm. to help uh, in terms of, of, of letting people know uh, the details of, uh, of the important uh, issues that, that we deal with in our books. Uh, there are two uh, related questions here, and we're headed towards the, to, to, to the, to the time limitation, and in both of these um, uh, are addressed to Heather. And one is, has to do with, it asks if there are targeted uh, a, were targeted assassinations at Attica along with the torture and murders. And of course, we, uh, I think you can address L.D. Barkley to be, to, as one of those uh, people who may well have been assassinated. Uh, and they also ask uh, how, if at all, did the split within the Panthers that went on in the early 70s, I, uh, where we saw the above ground uh, Black Panther Party and we saw the BLA, uh, which w went underground and, and, and took more direct action against police. Uh, the question was, how did uh, that split in the Black Panthers, uh, did that have any impact on, on Attica in, in terms of uh, not only the uprising in Attica, but the aftermath? 
Um, yeah, those are great questions. I mean, the the question about being about targeting. Look, there's <laughs> there's there's to me there is no question that there was targeting going on when the assault happens at Attica. There is uh, absolute uh, mayhem of shooting. The, the the men that go into Attica, both troopers, sheriffs, off-duty park police, and guards are armed with their personal weapons. They are armed with uh, guns issued from every member, every uh, law enforcement agency ammunition outlawed by the Geneva Convention, you name it. And in for 15 minutes, nonstop shooting, the shooting goes on even after uh, full control has gone on in the yard. And um, there are numerous accounts that a few of the men were alive after full order has been uh, established in the prison. And then subsequently are not alive uh, a few hours later. And one of the most notable of those men was L.D. Barkley, who was 21 years old, one of the most fiery speakers in uh, the prison, uh, and in fact, a member himself of the Black Panther Party, and uh, was there incidentally uh, as a parole violator for having uh, uh, driven without a driver's license and was in Attica prison. And um, there is seems to be little question that he was alive uh, when full order was established and he was then um, fully assassinated. And, and I don't think he was the only one. And, um, you know, everyone should know that the the shooters, the actual shooters at Attica, the troopers have been protected all of these years. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Attica. My book actually names the men, uh, the troopers who the state of New York believes were the shooters at Attica. And, you know, they're named after all of these years. And, um, and, you know, it is extraordinary to me that uh, they're still protected. Uh, it is extraordinary to me that there's been no truth or reconciliation. There's been no accounting for what happened at Attica and that the files at Attica are still closed after all these years. So the question about who was assassinated or who was killed or what happened is still an open question. We still don't have the full records that Attica disclosed. We're, there's still going to be legislation brought before the New York State Assembly this year in 2021 to open the records at Attica. So this is an open question, actually. Uh, so it's a great question because it remains an open question as to what happened at Attica. Despite 762-page book, there are things that we still are trying to get answers to. Um, and the other question about the Panthers, um, you know, the inner politics of Attica are fascinating. But the one thing I will say is that despite all of the myriad political um, uh, groups at Attica, and there were many, I mean, the Young Lords were at Attica, there were many different organizations at Attica. What is so extraordinary about Attica is that people came together. Uh, between September 9th and September 13th. They all come out into the yard. 
And uh, they stand together in that yard for four long days and four long nights, really incredibly. And uh, they stand together till the end. And even while the uh, there are some differences of opinion on how to fight the state um, in the legal trials, there is remarkable unity. Uh, despite the uh, myriad differences in opinion on political strategy of the 1970s, it is really kind of extraordinary how little that infighting uh, plays out in the yard in those uh, in, in that period of the rebellion, in my view. Well, we have. Thanks, Heather, um, for that answer. Um, and we have about four or five minutes left. So I think that if we can each uh, make a closing remarks and um, I'll start out and I'll, um, I'll address one of the questions that remains. We didn't get to all of the questions, but there, there was a question uh, that I can briefly speak about. Uh, and that is how high up did the uh, torture go and how high up was it known uh, about police torture? And uh, the answer to that is to the very top that Richie Daly, uh, the state's attorney of Cook County, who I mentioned went on for a 20-year reign as mayor, was informed specifically by the police superintendent, uh, Richard Brezak, and by a doctor at the county jail that Andrew Wilson was brutally tortured uh, with electric shock, with baggings, with, with, with burning on a radiator, uh, and that because he was uh, charged with killing two white cops, uh, they ignored that evidence and instead used the uh, tortured confession and the testimony of John Burge, the torturer, uh, to convict Andrew Wilson and did not prosecute Burge or any of his men. Uh, and only uh, 20, 25 years later was Burge and only Burge prosecuted. And by uh, a federal uh, prosecutor here uh, and prosecuted not for torture but rather for uh, obstruction of justice and lying about the fact that he tortured people. And the two main henchmen uh, that tortured Daryl Cannon with electric shock and mock execution, uh, Sergeant uh, John Byrne and, and Peter Dignan, uh, they were not and have not been prosecuted. Uh, they feds looked into his case and at the at, at their cases and at the last moment uh, refused to prosecute them for torturing or lying about the torture. So that is a a, a major aspect of the of the of the torture cases here in Chicago. But uh, in short, it was known to the top, and it couldn't have continued without police superintendents, without mayors without prosecutors, uh, and of course, uh, without uh, a wide range of, of police officers uh, all following the police code of silence. Uh, and with that, I'll pass it on to Heather for her closing remarks. Well, I mean, I just want to, again, just say how grateful I am to be here in the company of these two men and these uh, amazing uh <laughs> these amazing justice fighters and, uh, and really, really honored to be part of this, this presentation. Uh, I, I think that this is just the tip of the iceberg, these stories 
And there's so many more to still tell. I'm working on a book right now on the move bombing in Philadelphia in 1985. Mm. This is another one of those stories that we we know a lot about, but I suspect we don't know the half of yet. Uh, and um, I think that there's just so many more stories out there of this these these uh, stories of abuse, of torture, of of stories of people's lives that were destroyed because we just uh, weren't listening, we weren't paying attention, and we weren't. Uh, doing what we needed to do in terms of due diligence, equal justice under the law. And um, the book, The Torture Machine, is a must read because it's a manual about how to bring those stories to light and how to bring those uh, those people to justice. And so I'm just honored to, to be here with both of you to uh, to highlight this book that's now out in paperback and to uh, to share it with everybody with you. So thank you for for including me in this today. Well, thank you. Uh, we we are honored to have have you with us as well, Daryl. You want to put a capper on 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 this wonderful uh, exchange that we've had for the last ninety minutes? Fantastic, Heather Flint, and to the audience, I am grateful once again to be in your presence because uh, I'm around people who are sincere, and I say to the young people of today. Ah, you're fantastic. You continue the course as you're doing. You're doing the right thing for all the right reasons. And for all those torture survivors who you have not seen or heard from, please know that I'm pretty sure they're grateful for all the consideration, for all the things that people do in the name of bringing justice Finally, to all of us who deserve justice and on behalf of that and the media, the whole works, I do believe that a better day is coming. I don't know when, but a better day is coming and it's already taking fruition. Uh, We're getting rid of that idiot that's up there in the White House right now. And that is truly a blessing, you know, and. Uh, something that we didn't get a chance to touch upon, but would you believe that Trump has killed um, three or four prisoners and still have three or four more that he's going to let be executed before he leave office? Now, if that is not diabolical, there's nothing on face of earth that's diabolical. But then, too, he's been that way since day one, and he's not the only one. That's why we the people must stay the course at all costs. And youngsters, continue to look good, and God bless. Well, thank you, Daryl, and thank you to Haymarket. And to close, I'll quote uh, Fred Hampton. Dare to struggle, dare to win. You don't des- if you don't dare to struggle, then God damn it, you don't deserve to win. There you go. Power <laughs> to the people. <laughs> yes, yes, I like that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.